On this week's episode, we welcome Candy Carson and Dr. Ben Carson. Candy Carson is a co-author for many of her husband's books, Dr. Benjamin S. Carson. Ms. Carson, when did you know that you and your husband would be co-authors of best-selling books, including the latest one, Created Equal, which is on the New York Times bestsellers list? Hmm. Well, I didn't know any of them were going to be bestsellers. I just knew that he asked me to help him, and I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. What does it take to write a book? <laughs> a lot of faith. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to stick to the schedule. You know, that, that, that's the best feeling when you have made your deadline, you know. And, and books are about deadlines. Creating equal, the subject matter, how did you come to talk about creating equal? Why is that important, particularly in the times we find ourselves in now? Yes. Well, that's something you ask him because he started the book before I, you asked me to join him on this one. And I said, you know, you're going to be doing something. And I said, oh, really? Okay. Because he started the book. So let me just pass this over to him. So, so Dr. Carson, which book, in the line of all the books that you and your wife have written together, how many books have you written now? Uh, Eleven. Eleven books. Were they all bestsellers? Uh, most of them were, yes. When, when did you write your first book? Uh, Gifted Hand was, was writ came out in 1990. And it was interesting because the publisher was very excited about it. Said, this is really good for an autobiographical sketch. It will probably sell 14,000 copies, which is really good for an autobiography. It sold more than two million. Uh, you know, people were very interested in, in the stories. And, you know, I try to make points in the book about broad uh, topics that are relevant to people and use your own personal life stories to emphasize those points. You know, both you and your husband are Yale graduates, mm -hmm. um, and you, you love, you're a reader of books. Um, talk about going from reading books mm -hmm. into writing and publishing books. Mm -hmm. Well, with the first book, actually, most people don't realize that I wrote part of that, too, and they were trying to find a way to open the book up and said, you know, why not? I'll give it a shot. And um, that ended up being the introduction at the beginning. It starts out more blood stat, and I, from then on, I can't remember the rest of it, but it was, it was just something that I had, I had heard him speak about, you know, when he was on the speaker circuit, and he still is, actually. But he started way back then, while he was still a, a chief of pediatric neurosurgery, because there was, oh, there was a, a demand for stories, American stories of you know, rags to riches or, you know, uh, someone who was in dire poverty and then they become well known. So um, anyway, um, from that first book, but uh, the first book that we wrote together was America the Beautiful. And I can remember even <coughs> his schedule was so busy, we were trying to finish it before we were supposed to go on a cruise, believe it or not. Um, it was to raise money for another charity. and. Um, we couldn't finish it before we got on the on the boat, so we had to take all of our stuff with us and finish on the boat. You know, Dr. Carson, <laughs> people know you as a neuropediatric neurosurgeon, former presidential candidate, former secretary of housing and urban development, but some people's careers, are, they are just full-time authors writing best-selling books. 
Why is that important to you, the writing of books? Just the ability to write something that we don't glorify anymore. What it takes to create that gift and that talent. Well, communication is such a vital part of the sociology of our country and of the world and of all people, being able to communicate ideas. Uh, and often when you do that in a book, you can get your points across uninterrupted. Uh, when you're having a conversation, a lot of times people are just waiting for you to pause so they can insert their idea. So when you write a book, you can get the complete thoughts across. And I think uh, that's very helpful. If no one is born a racist, as you and Mrs. Carson discuss in your book, what are the things that influence you to become a racist, to become prejudiced, to see people differently because of the hue of their skin? Well, you know, children uh, really are not racist at all. Uh, they play, they enjoy each other, and they are taught that by their parents and by various associates and adults uh, who teach them that this person is different than you are. Uh, that's one of the key factors about critical race theory. It teaches people that the color of your skin is the greatest determinant of what happens to you in life. Uh, that is just the opposite of what Dr. King and so many fought for. They wanted people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And of course, uh, that's the way God made us. We have these big, sophisticated frontal lobes, which have the ability to extract information from the past, integrate it with information from the present, project it into the future, do complex analysis. Animals, on the other hand, have brains that are, have much better developed midbrains, which are for reacting. So animals look at something and they react to it. Uh, people don't have to do that because they have these incredible capabilities associated with their frontal lobes of their brain. So Mrs. Carson, how should individuals in an uplifting and meaningful way look at the rainbow of colors that God has given us all in his creation? Well, we've been blessed with diversity, you know, with the different colors. I mean, you can see things black and white like they say a lot of animals do, regular, you know, other animals, but um, there's there's so much variety, and in variety, you know, I mean, who would who would want to go to a zoo as I, or, you know, to a, an aquarium if every fish were the same fish? That's something that he speaks about um, when, when he's speaking at, at some of these events. Um, or if every flower were exactly the same, you know, and it was always the same color. Um, it, it's, it's great to have diversity because, and especially if you look back in the history of our country, we had diversity of people with diversity of thought, people coming from diverse places and so on and so forth with, the, you know, diverse experiences. You put all those together and you've got more innovation than you can imagine. I hear him say these days that with the last, in the last 100 years, 90% of the innovations have come from America. New things that are out there because we have an atmosphere, an environment where we encourage people to think independently, to appreciate others' ideas, put them together and come up with new solutions that may not, uh, may not arise without that kind of interaction.
So, 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 Dr. Carson, what in the uniqueness of writing about this book, someone say that it becomes more about classism than racism? Well, there's a, a chapter in the book called, Is It Racism or Classism? Uh, and a lot of people don't make the distinction, but it is significant. And uh, in America, there is classism. And a lot of people say, no, 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 we don't have classes in the United States of America. Well, if that were the case, why is the term middle class used? How can there be a middle class if there's not an upper class and a lower class? Uh, obviously there are, and people pay close attention to it. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of blacks fall into the lower end of that class scale and are treated accordingly. Uh, you, I'm sure, know that blacks who are extremely wealthy or renowned are treated differently. And uh, this, I make a point in the book that classism is just as wrong as racism. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be an egalitarian society and uh, we should treat each other the same. You know, God loves everybody. And uh, our Judeo-Christian values teach us to love your neighbor and not to love the one who has more assets more and the one who is poor less. And that's a tendency that people have and it must be fought. But, but Mr. Carson, you all have three sons who are very successful. Uh, were there instances growing up where they experienced this thing we call racism? Were your teachings different from them on how to address it? Because someone just looking at the pigment of your skin can make a judgment. Mm -hmm. And it can be unfair, it can malign you, it can deny you opportunity. And teaching your children, how do others teach the nation to overcome that, which is real? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't remember them ever talking about having those experiences. But, you know, there are subtle things that happen in everybody's life. But one of the things that I make the point of in the book is that if you're looking for racism, you're going to find racism. If, you, if somebody tells you, see that person over there? They're a racist, and they convince you of that. And then you go and talk to that person. You're going to interpret everything they say as racist, when in fact it may not be. Uh, and they may have said just the opposite. It's the same person. That's the most wonderful person, loving and kind. And they may say the same thing. You say, oh, wow, they're so nice. They're so loving, so kind. You know, you tend to see what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, one of the points that I make in the book is that things have changed on a racial basis so dramatically in this country, just in my lifetime. You know, as a child, I remember when a black person came on television in a non-servile role, it was a big deal. You called everybody into the living room, hey, look at this, everybody was so enthusiastic. Um, now, you have black admirals and generals and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and heads of foundations and university presidents, including Ivy Leagues. We've elected a black president twice to the United States. We have a black vice president. I mean, the list goes on and on just in my lifetime. So to say that 
that we're not making progress is completely false. Have we reached nirvana? Absolutely not. Do we still need to make progress? Absolutely. But we need to make a decision. Do we want to base our future on the great progress or do we want to base our future on the failures that have occurred in the past? Mrs. Carson, how do you address parents um, who will say to their kids, because they're black, you will never have the same degree of success as someone else. You'll never be as good. You've got to try twice as hard as the next, and still yet, you'll be maligned and not really get the opportunity that is deserving in America. Yeah, um, I usually don't come up against parents like that. I mean, it's, it's not something that, uh, <clears throat> that occurs uh, periodically, but um, with the charity that we started and, and um, called Carson Scholars, we put in reading rooms around the country. We've just done over uh, 250 in several, 20-some uh, states in D.C. Um, and when I speak to those children, because I'll have, you know, maybe 500 kids at a time that'll be listening, and I tell them about the power of the brain that I've heard him speak about over the years, how your brain can process two million bits of information every second. Nobody can tell you you're dumb. They might say it, but you, you don't take that to heart because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And when I tell them that, you know, if you could learn one fact every second, and they guess, you know, how long it'll take before, you know, you start to challenge the capacity of your brain, learning one fact every second is hard to do because even to conceptualize it in one, one second is hard. But say you could for the sake of argument, it would take you three million years to start to challenge the capacity of your brain. So I can tell that to them. And I get a kick out. I get goosebumps now just thinking about being able to help them, enable them, help them to understand that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And if God puts something in your heart to do, you, he'll give you a way to do it. So nobody is dumb. You got a normal brain. You're not dumb. And all, all subjects are based on building blocks. Help them understand that. You may have missed some of those building blocks because you were out sick or maybe um, the person that was teaching was a substitute and that wasn't their main subject in school. But if you're missing building blocks, things don't make sense, um, whether it's physics or chemistry, algebra, geometry. But take reading, and, that, and it's a wonderful example because all of them can relate to this. If you knew all the letters except A, S, T, and E, what could you read? Nothing. It would be difficult. But you plug those in and it makes perfect sense. So when they say, oh, the kids, I, they're little, I, they, their mouths are hanging open, they're looking for it, it's just, it's so cool. I get such a kick out of enabling those kids, you know, so, so whenever I get a chance, I do go to those reading room openings, and each one of those is, you know, it's decorated whimsically to draw the kids in, and they get points for reading, and they turn in those points for prizes. It's just great to get the kids motivated about learning. So that's one of the things I really enjoy doing, besides, you know, the books, but when you can tell a kid, you know, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and the power of what you've got between these two ears, you know, and how they can take advantage of it. If they don't understand something, go back to when you did understand it and then read from there, fill in those building blocks. You write in your new book, Created Equal, that George Floyd was a turning point in this country. Dr. Carson. Yeah, well, that was a, a huge incident. Uh, you had this white police officer, uh, who obviously was not a particularly compassionate person, uh, killed someone uh, in full view of everyone, uh, being very nonchalant about it. And it played right into the narrative uh, 
that we have a systemically racist country and that this kind of thing goes on all the time. And it was played repeatedly. Uh, I was talking to last week someone from Australia. They said, oh yeah, that was played 24-7 on the other side of the world. Um, to try to make it seem like this is something that occurs all the time. As horrible as it was, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite so horrendous. Uh, it is not a common occurrence. And many surveys have been done asking people, you know, how many black unarmed men are killed by white policemen each year in the United States? And the numbers are astronomical that people believe. But uh, based on the statistics from the Washington Post, hardly a conservative outlet, it's less than two dozen a year with more than 50 million police civilian encounters. So it's vanishingly rare, but it is still horrible. And we talk about maybe some of the solutions, some of the things that can be done so that we can eliminate even those few cases that do occur. But uh, we have to recognize that there are those who try to manipulate the situation uh, to their point so they can say, let's defund the police. Uh, let's let criminals out things like that, things that don't make a lot of sense and things that uh, tend to actually hurt the black community much more than they do any other community in our country. You know, Mrs. Carson, um, in Buffalo, New York, uh, and in Charleston, South Carolina, my cousin Clemente Pinckney was the victim of Dylan Roof, who clearly and admittedly went to the church because he said he wanted to kill black people. In Buffalo, New York, the demon there convinced himself that he had to kill black people, and that they did. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, there is a sick element in this society that want to kill people just because they're black, whether they're old, because they're young, and people watching this have fear for their children, for themselves, because they feel only because of the hue of their skin, they not only are being targeted, but massacred. What do you say? When he talks about how we're made in our brains and how, you know, um, Martin Luther King said, we're looking for a time when we can judge people by the content of their character rather than their skin color. He also talks about how, our, how we're made mm -hmm. and how an um, animal's brain is. Can, can you, excuse me, I'm going to deflect to him to talk about that because cause that's an important well, aspect of this. The fact that animals tend to react, whereas people have the ability to analyze and to think. And, but where the, the real answer to that question is, evil, good and evil, right and wrong, how people are taught, what kind of environment do people grow up in. To get someone like the person you mentioned in South Carolina, like the one who did that horrendous thing in New York, uh, can you imagine the environment that they would have to uh, experience in order to develop that kind of hatred? Um, 
there are very evil people in the world. And there are evil people who are black, there are evil people who are white, there are evil people who are every color. There are also very good people of all those different races. And it's very important that we learn how to evaluate people as people and not as groups. And that is absolutely a key essential point that is made in the book. Yeah. He's talk talking about, because sure. the thing I was hoping you'd get to is how the animals have a very developed midbrain, which, would, which enables you to react to certain situations, and, 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 and they have really quick reflexes because of that. But like he was saying, with our frontal lobes, you know, they're more developed. We, don't ha we have a much smaller midbrain, so we don't react as quickly as an animal might, any, a dog or fox or whatever. Um, but um, with, with that, if, if, if you look at, you know, the, the critical race and, and what some people who have hatred try to instill in others, um, the fact that you should act more like an animal than like a human being because we really should consider those things. And, and sad, sad to say that um, it wasn't that long ago that um, our mental institutions, a bunch of them closed and, and also in other places, and they shipped the people over here. So a lot of our homeless people and others in our society have problems, but most of them, I'm not sure of the percentage, but if they had some medication, if they had a way to deal with it, um, we wouldn't have as much of that. So that's another problem that's in our society today, that we have people who, if they only had the chance that for medication or whatever, to, and, and to help them develop their thinking processes and, and rather than the reaction to um, a, a, a visual stimulus. Yeah, and it is, it is important to point out that we have a tendency to take these people who are way off on the far end of the bell curve and try to generalize that. When in fact, you know, these are unique individuals who are evil, who are sick, and uh, I think it's wrong when we try to generalize about a whole society based on those kind of people. Well, talk about, you talk in your book about guilt and victimhood surrounding race. Well, one of the things that is happening is people are using race as a cudgel to beat people down, to make white people feel guilty, you know, talking about slavery and, and all the ramifications of slavery. Uh, most people don't realize that in the South, the, the vast majority of white people didn't own slaves. Slaves were for rich people. They were not for everybody. Um, but, you know, you go on and you start teaching your children that the white children that they and their ancestors are evil and have created all the problems for all the minorities. I have a friend, his granddaughter came home crying. She was eight years old. Grandpa, am I evil because I'm white? You know, where are they getting this stuff from? And obviously, uh, it has a very detrimental effect. And then just as malicious is teaching black children and minorities that they can't achieve their potential because of a society that is stacked against them. Well, if you think you're a victim, you are a victim. And you begin to act like a victim. And you begin to think like a victim. Uh, you know, my mother used to always tell me 
If you walk into an auditorium full of racist white people, you don't have a problem. They have a problem mm -hmm. because they're all going to cringe and wonder if you're going to sit next to them, whereas you can sit anywhere you want. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you don't have to inculcate everybody else's problem into your own psyche. Uh, Mr. Stark, you touched on critical race theory. Critical race theory in the 1619 Project is a chapter in your book. Mm -hmm. Talk about critical race theory. I'm going to deflect. <laughs> that was one of his chapters. Well, well you know, critical race theory is based on critical legal theory. Mm -hmm. um, Harvard. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk about Bell and the various uh, people, but just to say that they said that all of our laws, all of our policies, our very founding documents are based on people trying to create an atmosphere where white supremacy remained intact and that they would always be in control. And then uh, all the critical theories derived from that. And there are those who truly believe that. They truly believe that our laws and our systems uh, are built to keep white people uh, in control. In power. Yeah. Now, I will have to admit that some things are very troublesome. Uh, for instance, uh, as housing secretary, you know, I railed against the fact that anybody who was getting housing subsidies, if they got a raise, they immediately had to report that so that their rent could go up. Or if someone else came into the household uh, with an income, they had to report that so that their rent could go up. Dr. Ben Carson, retired neurosurgeon, served as the 17th United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. His wife, Mrs. Candy Carson, is an American author mm -hmm. and businesswoman. You were talking about your experiences at HUD, and you left us with raise their rent. Yeah, uh, we have policies built in, whereas if you earn more money or someone comes into your household uh, who has an income, you have to report it immediately so your rent can be raised. Well, that doesn't really incentivize you to work hard and to, to get more money or family structure. And uh, those things are entrenched in our system. I worked very hard to try to undo some of that, but uh, there are a lot of people on the Hill who do not want that to be the case. It's almost like they want people to be dependent, and we still have a lot of work to do on that. But, uh, but we did a lot of things to try to get people out of poverty, uh, such as Envision Centers, we had 13 federal agencies working with state agencies, working with local nonprofits and, and churches, all under one roof, uh, so that that woman with three children who never finished high school can go to one place, be able to get childcare, be able to get her GED, be able to get further training so that she can become independent, teach that to her children so you can break those cycles of dependency. That's the way we solve these problems, not just by handing things to people. That doesn't do anything except keep them dependent. You know, I was fascinated by your chapters on the media and big tech and the role they play in all this. <laughs> well, tell, tell them about our Constitution and the press. 
Ms. Carson. What do you mean about our Constitution and the press? It's the only business protected by the Constitution. Well, of course it is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love See, this. you answered your own question. This is great. <laughs> I mean, everybody, well, no, I guess everybody doesn't know that, but we've been talking about that, gosh, for the last, what, 10 years, you know, how it's... Mm -hmm. And, and the press is the only business protected by our Constitution. But if they're not ethical, then where does that put us? The press is supposed to keep everybody else honest. If they're dishonest, where does that leave us? Our system of government is based on a well-informed and well-educated populace. Well, we're not as informed as we might think we are because we're not getting the full picture from some of the media. And that's very problematic, obviously, because our, our country is supposed to be run on the will of the people. Well, how will people know what their will is if they're getting distorted information, uh, if mm -hmm. they're getting information from people who have an agenda? Yep. So, you know, I always, when I see young journalists, mm -hmm. you know, I, I tell them about the history of journalism and how vitally important it is to the freedoms that we have in our country. And I say, maybe you can be on the, the very front line of a new group of very ethical uh, media people who understand how vital their role is in keeping America free and prosperous. Mrs. Carson, you, you spoke eloquently about... I'm candy, Mrs. Carson. Oh, yes, Take too long. No, no, no. <laughs> about um, the Carson scholars. Talk about how critical it is, particularly in places like Baltimore, Washington, these are all across the country that education is so critical to what we're talking about today. Because yeah. as you were just talking about mm -hmm. the media and big tape, they're only able to manipulate because they feel the people are ignorant. Mm -hmm. They're misinformed. Mm -hmm. They're unaware. Why is it so important to have an education in the early years? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think it is, I, people have probably heard from birth through third grade, you learn to read. From fourth grade on, you read to learn. So if you don't have that basic, that basic element of reading, learning to read, and having that knowledge, um, you're going to be behind from that point on, and it's just going to get worse and snowball to the point where, I mean, you've probably seen people that ask you, um, you know, what does the sign over there say? Because I, I left my glasses home. A, and these are people that can't read, and they haven't they don't feel comfortable trying to learn how to read because here they are older and and you know they just try to get by but you know it reading unlocks so many doors you know when you have an education and it doesn't matter where you're starting in the United States it's where you're going because we do have still have opportunities um, a lot of opportunities are being taken away but but there's still some you know as long as you prepare yourself and, and develop yourself to be the best you can be there, there's no limit they used to say the sky's the limit. With our uh, with our scholarship program this year, we were we were doing out of space like travel. <laughs> it was interesting. I'll get into that another time. But uh, but it's not just the sky's the limit. Outer space is the limit. I mean, think about it. We knew we now have a space force in the United States, and you hear about China was sending some people up. You know, so, so I mean, so space is a, space is the new frontier. So so I mean, you keep in mind that as long as you develop yourself, do what you can to be the best you can be, and you can be more than you ever dreamed if you just realize that if you've got a normal brain, 
you can do anything. You know, Dr. Carson, you know, many of the social pathologies that are pervasive in America has to do with the lack of education, even sexual trafficking, prostitution, <sighs> crime, homicide. And you know what many people are concluding today, I don't know if you and Mrs. Carson will embrace this, is that many young people who commit these crimes and these acts, they do it really because they, and many times they don't know right from wrong. They don't understand moral striving. They don't understand what that means because they never had an example nor were they ever taught. Well, you, you, what you're talking about is so important. It's family structure. And uh, it's what gives you the basis of your identity and your belief system. Now, one thing that's very interesting that we point out in the book is that, yes, there is a wealth gap between blacks and whites in this country. It's 5 to 10x, so it's big. Uh, however, if you look at Nigerian families in the United States, Ghanaian families in the United States, there's little or no wealth gap. Now, what is it about those families? Well, if you go and you study them, you'll find that a bachelor's degree is the baseline. That's where you start with those families. Mm -hmm. They really value education and family structure. And interestingly enough, if you take traditional black American families like yours, you don't have a wealth gap either because people uh, have not inculcated victimhood and they have learned how to take advantage of the situations that exist around them. And that's what we need to be teaching people. Not that you're a victim, not that somebody has their foot in your throat, but here's the way that you move forward and here's what you can take advantage of. And I don't care where you came from, if you get a very good education in this country, you write your own ticket. One of the things that you address in this book as a follow-up to what you both said, you address whether systemic racism exists in America. And systemic racism, I won't say that there aren't instances of it, but perhaps one of the best instances that I can point to is that there are groups of people who believe that if you have black skin, you have to think a certain way. And if you don't think that way, you're an Uncle Tom, you're a race trader, you're this, that, and the other. Um, what could be more racist than that? Um, and those are the kinds of things that we need to move away from. Uh, when we see things that are impacting people negatively on the basis of race, we should be quick to change those things. We should be quick to identify, acknowledge, and change those things. But again, it is unfair not to recognize that we have been seeing those things and we have been fixing those things. And that's why America is a very different place today than it was when I was a child. And hopefully tomorrow it'll be even better. Mrs. Carson, um, during your husband's presidential run, what were some of the most heartwarming and overwhelming things that you learned about America? Well, it's, it's quite an education. You know, wherever we went, and we went to a lot of places, every state in the Union, and we went to little hamlets, it didn't matter where you went, Americans were genuine. 
beautiful people, people who think, people who care about our country, people who care about it for the future as well. Um, unlike some of the uh, politicians, you know, in, in, in D.C. it's a different story. But as you go around, everybody cares. So it was wonderful meeting the people that have, you know, have the American values. You know, and and they're, they 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 want what's best for their children. They want what's best for their grandchildren, and so so I mean that's what that's what keeps you going when you know you you finish like at ten or eleven at night, and you've got to leave at three in the morning to catch a flight that's a little ways away, and so on. and you do several of those in a row, and you're not feeling human anymore, but you keep going because of your children, grandchildren, and the people that you meet around the country. You know, Dr. Carson, your co-author just mentioned values, and one of the chapters in your book, which was one of my favorites, uh, Judeo-Christian values and racism. Yeah, well, you know, there are a lot of people who, who try to claim that the Bible condones slavery, and uh, it doesn't. And we explain in the book uh, the context in which those things are said, where it says, you know, slaves obey your masters. It is in the context of try to live peaceably no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances are. But the Bible makes it very clear that slavery is not a desirable position to be in. And it talks about the slavery of the children of Israel for 400 years in, in, in Egypt and, uh, and several other places. Also talks about how you should treat people of different races. And one of the, the most famous stories, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, the, the Jewish rabbi, the priest, they passed by the guy who was laying on the road beat up, who was also a Jew. But it was the Samaritan. And the Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. But it was the Samaritan who came and ministered to him, put him on his donkey, took him to the inn, paid for his care. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is not just someone who looks like you. We are all each other's neighbors. You know, continue, because one of the chapters in your book, you address, you and your co-author, the history of slavery. Yes. Well, so important, because there are those who try to make it seem like the United States is uniquely evil because of the institution of slavery. And we point out the fact that slavery has been a component of virtually every civilization since there's been written history. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been at any time in history. Uh, when you look at human trafficking, and the biggest consumer, the United States of America. So we've got some super problems going on right here today. We don't have to go back and dredge through history to try to find a problem. We got them right now. We need to deal with them because hundreds of thousands of people's lives are being destroyed by it. But having said that, there is something unique about the United States and slavery. And that is, we had so many people who were vehemently opposed to it that we fought a bloody civil war and lost a large portion of our population to get rid of it. And, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we put all of these things in context. And slavery was horrible, it was horrendous, uh, but again, we're not the only ones who've had it. We have overcome it. Uh, we need to learn from it. We need to learn from 
you know, Jim Crow. We need to learn from all the things that happened, make sure that those things do not happen again. That's one of the reasons we state in the book, it's not good to take down everything and every name that has been associated with any mistakes in our past. Because if we don't know our past, you know, we could very easily wind up doing similar things again. You know, one of the, oh, well, please. Well, one yeah. of the things when I was uh, researching found that, uh, you know, in the Supreme Court, the people that, uh, the architect and, and the, uh, the stonemason, the, you know, the, uh, the sculptor, artist, uh, put in people who had contributed to our way of thinking and our, our you know, our, our logic and our, and our, uh, our legal ways, you know. Um, um, one of the things that's on the Supreme Court right up by the ceiling is uh, Moses with the Ten Commandments. To his right is Solomon, but to his left is Hammurabi. He was uh, a king of Babylon. He's, he's, he's credited with establishing that, uh, that empire. But he, um, he's recorded, there was a, a stila that was found in that, that's written in the book too, that had the rules of Hammurabi and the code. And um, some of that code was uh, rules about slavery and how you should treat the slaves and how the slaves should treat others and so on and so forth. So Hammurabi is right up there in our Supreme Court. So I mean, that, and that, that's in the book too. It's just, it just goes to show, you don't want to forget, like he was saying, you know, what has gone before us because we don't want to repeat the bad things, but we want to keep the good things and, may, and you know, just continue to um, improve on those. Uh, Dr. Carson, uh, Mrs. Carson spoke about education and you write about in your book uh, education being the great equalizer and also the path forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, because the more you know, the more valuable you become. And an interesting thing that we need to make sure that we teach our young people is the more valuable you are, the more people pay you so you can make a good living. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so nothing wrong with the, and, and I always tell this to young people, I say, you know, the average person today in this country lives to be about 80 years old. The first 20 years or so you spent either preparing yourself or not preparing yourself. If you prepare yourself, you have 60 years to reap the benefits. If you don't prepare yourself, you have 60 years to suffer the consequences. And when you think about it that way, maybe that initial investment is not so difficult. You know, uh, the Carsons have three grown sons, eight grandchildren, and what I love about the conversation today about creating equal, because we've seen an incredible example that marriages work. They can work together, they can be the best of friends. We all have our conflicts, but in the end, what you as a power couple, a couple so blessed by God, has produced, and the impact that you've had on the world can never be understated. You, you, this, do you ever, as my mother used to say to me, do you ever pinch yourself? <laughs> <laughs> all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Recognize how fortunate we are Mm -hmm. to have been born in this country. Yeah. You know, now some people say, no, 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 you would have been better off in Africa. But, you know, what I always say to that is, people came here from England, from France, from Germany, from Australia, from every part of the world, including Africa, and all of them are better off than they were in the other place where they were. 
Mm -hmm. Mrs. Carson, what would you want the reader to take from Created Equal? Mm. The title. Created, it's just that simple. I, you know, it, it's, it's in our Constitution, our pledge. I mean, we're, you know, the Declaration, we are one nation under God, you know, and we're all equal. And we should respect each other that way. If everyone is equal, everyone has their own life experience, their own backgrounds that's different from everybody else's. So that's why we really do need to respect each and every person. Dr. Carson, can we or will we ever realize that? I think what we need to, to ask ourselves is, are we enemies? And I think if we analyze that carefully, we will come to understand that we're not enemies. You can take the most radical right-wing person and the most radical left-wing person. They're going to agree on 90% of stuff. But we let people take that 10% they don't agree on and manipulate it and blow it up and make it into the main thing. It is not the main thing. The, the main thing is that we live in America in a place where we have liberty and justice for all. And all. we should make that clear to everyone. And above all else, um, because I can feel it in your spirit, I can see it in your eyes, why, does it, why is it that God remains the center of all things in your life? You always acknowledge him. You always give him credit. You always put him first. Because he has been so good to us. Uh, you know, he loves us. Mm -hmm. And I've seen his hand in my life many times. You know, there were so many times when I should have even lived when he has intervened. Mm -hmm. The town and, of Chicago. <laughs> and then, you know, he gave me the world's most wonderful Thanks. wife. He gave me wonderful children Keep and grandchildren. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, is great. <laughs> a, a tremendous career. Everything that I get involved in, he seems to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not me. I know it's not me because, yeah. you know, I'm just plain old little guy from Detroit. Yeah. But uh, I know who, who can make things happen. And if you open your eyes, you see him working in your life. Because, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, like, he had just started his uh, think tank, do tank, and uh, came up with the name late January. The next week, I'm going through boxes, and I was going to chuck it because everything was 1993 and, you know, who, what happened in 1993. But anyway... I see the Declaration of Independence written in the script, you know, so I take it out as a calendar, a commemorative calendar, opening it up, finding out that it's uh, to celebrate, commemorate the uh, 200th anniversary of the laying of the cornerstone of the Capitol building, and the name of his institute is American Cornerstone. If I had found that box, you know, weeks before or, you know, at any other time, I wouldn't have given it a second thought, but here it is. He just named it American Cornerstone, and here I'm finding a calendar with Cornerstone on it. Hello, you know. So you just see and, him in little things. And did you look at the date on it? Oh, yes, of course, yes. Then I looked a little closer. The date of that calendar. That we, well, the date that the, um, cornerstone. the cornerstone was laid. His birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hello. You can't make that up. No, no, you don't. So, yeah, so I, of course I made kick pictures. I, you know, we have pictures, you know, copies of it on the walls. But, uh, yeah, God's yeah, there. But, you know, when you think about our country, mm -hmm. our amazing country, and the 
rise from a bunch of ragtag militiamen to the pinnacle of the world in record time. What was it? It was some of our values and principles, one of which was our faith in God. Mm -hmm. That's why every coin in your pocket, every billion wallet says, in God we trust. That's why our Pledge of Allegiance to our flag says, one nation under God. And we need to think about those things. There's a reason that we accelerate it. And if we throw away those godly principles, it's going to be replaced with something else, and I guarantee you it won't be as good. You know, I um, cannot thank the Carsons for sitting out with us to talk about Created Equal. I really encourage you to go out and get your copy. It's not political. It's not left. It's not right. It's just the truth. And I can't thank you enough for writing this book and coming in our house to share it with our national audience. Thank you for joining us on another episode 